When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Hey, great shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Cracked Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. On today's show, we have our final preseason women's edition of the Deciding Point, where we have offered our top 10 Division I women's college tennis teams heading into the 2024 season. Of course, the calendar says 2024. That means college tennis is upon us. And before we can get into breaking down, any of the action that unfolds on court, we got to offer you our final thoughts, our final preseason edition of this podcast, breaking down our preseason number one and the ITA unanimous preseason number one, the defending NCAA team champion, four-time defending national indoor champion UNC Tar Heels, the subject of our final preseason edition of this show. And join Joining me for this podcast as he has throughout the preseason, throughout the summer, over the course of the past few years, I have been so fortunate to be joined, excuse me, by this man, a man you know best as the returning champion of returning champions here on our Crack Rackets podcast, founder of the No Ad, No Problem blog and podcast. He will be my co-host during the regular season as well. I promise I'll get that scheduled to you at some point. My dearest friend, John J. Parsons, joining us once again. Jay, hey, great shot. Welcome back to the show. I am both so excited and yet a little bit sad to have reached this point of our podcast series. It means we are at the end of our countdown but more importantly, it means a new season is upon us. And I guess it's glass half full because I'm going to be seeing you plenty throughout the course of the regular season. All of that said, you ready for this college tennis season to begin? Yeah, I'm not sad at all that we're at the <laughs> end here. I'm excited. This feels like the culmination of a lot of work put into this, but also tennis is here. It's right around the corner. It's We've seen some action kick off more on the men's side. We've got matches kicking off this weekend. So there's a lot to be excited about, and I think it's going to be a really fun season. Yeah, I'm so looking forward to it. And, you know, again, we have had a few, I don't know what we call these, invitationals, I guess is what they're called by a lot of schools. They're not hidden duels exactly. You have a couple of schools traveling to one location, having a bunch of matches played over the course of the weekend. We'll get into that as we get into our regular season coverage, but yeah, I'm ready to roll the balls out. I'm ready to see who's actually showing up on these rosters, who's eligible, who's not. We can get into those conversations. We can start getting into lineup conversations everywhere. We can start previewing kickoff weekend. We're already going to have 
have some top 25 showdowns before we even get to that kickoff weekend. So we'll have plenty of actual results to discuss. In the meantime, again, one more preseason preview for all of you listeners to enjoy. And for the last time, I guess I will remind you, if you missed any of our preseason top 10 podcasts, all you have to do to catch up is scroll down on your Great Shot podcast feed. You can hear our arguments for teams 2 through 10 in our preseason rankings. You can hear who we left out in our preseason preview podcast. Of course, we'll get into more depth, not be, uh, looking beyond, excuse me, the top 10 as we continue our coverage throughout the course of the regular season. And by the way, if you scroll down on that podcast feed, not only will you find my conversations with Jay, you will find my conversations with Chris Halioris, who has helped me break down our top 10 men's team. Speaking of which, before we get into our preseason number one team, the unanimous number one, the UNC Tar Heels, Jay, I had a lot of fun last week listening to your critique of our men's podcast. Critique, maybe too strong of a word, your feedback, which I always enjoy hearing, of course, before you were a regular contributor here. You were our number one listener. Thus, we I ask you, go back to your roots. I know you have some thoughts about the Ohio State podcast. Let us hear it before we get into number one UNC. Well, yeah, for folks who haven't listened to our Stanford episode, I use that as the forum to give my feedback as a voting member here on both <laughs> the men's and women's side. I actually thought about that before we worked together in a professional capacity here. <laughs> I would often share my thoughts and feedback on Twitter. And so because we are professionals, now we do it on mic and I give you that <laughs> feedback. So if you haven't listened to the Stanford pod, that's where I gave my feedback on TCU. and. What's so interesting about the Ohio State episode, Gruskin, is it appears that the tennis intelligentsia is quite the mercurial bunch (laughs) because on the TCU episode, it was all about the tennis intelligentsia truly believes it's a top four. On the Ohio State episode, the tennis intelligentsia is not giving Ohio State enough credit, and it's really a top three. So there's been a lot of movement in the tennis intelligentsia world and their thoughts and their feedback, but I thought it was a fun episode. You can tell you are hyped about these top men's teams. And (laughs) yeah, I feel like next time, just call me out. Next time, (laughs) just say, I was going to Jay, John, again, my name is John. Uh, (laughs) You can call me Jay. John didn't have Ohio State in his favorites tier. It was a Texas, Virginia, and that is true. Uh, but I felt like it was a shot at me. But again, a mercurial bunch is this tennis intelligentsia. Well, this is how I know I've rubbed off on you. You think my comments are about you when, in fact, I don't have the focus to direct them at anyone. I don't even <laughs> remember saying them, let alone 48 hours, 24 hours later. I took the L on the TCU podcast in the midst of our Stanford opening tangent. I have always thought it is a clear-cut top three, and I should have held my ground more firmly during the TCU podcast. I didn't, as I tend to get rosy-eyed during these previews. That's why I hope you listeners get excited. They certainly make me excited for the start of the college tennis season. The stat I keep pointing to is through their top five players, Ohio State has 24 years of experience in their doubles lineup, and that's excluding the sixth piece, whether it's an Anthrop, whether it's a Nakashima or someone else. They have experience everywhere. Like We've seen this lineup have success before, and it's so many proven pieces across the board that typically if you're that proven and you're coming off of an NCAA final appearance and you're arguably better 
from a roster perspective the next year, although I don't want to underscore, uh, I don't want to undersell the loss of James Trotter. Like that roster is traditionally your preseason unanimous number one. And it's again, speaks to the fact that UVA brings back what they do, that Texas not only brings back what they do, but it seems like they're going to get Bailey eligible. Certainly Braswell will be eligible to start the season. That's added depth to what was already a really good top five, top six last season. Look, I'm very glass half full on this Ohio State team. What would the younger version of me had said, Jay, before I had relationships with everyone? It's absolutely a prove-it season. I, I think I emphasized that, though, throughout the course of the podcast enough. And I guess that's the feedback I'm afraid I was afraid of and that I didn't perhaps emphasize enough is that, look, they have the core, they have the seniors, and this is the last time they're all together. Like, this is the window. This is the Ohio State team where Prior, you know, again, you can forget everything that's happened in the past because of what this group has uniquely been through, getting better at the NCAA every season, and one last real go at it this year, having already played in an NCAA final. I agree, the expectations are NCAA championship or bust, but this group has earned that privilege of having that mindset in a way maybe no prior Ohio State team has, and like they get the benefit of the doubt of, okay, go out and prove it this year because they've done just about everything else. Yeah, but you have two other teams who have done it's what everything makes it else so fascinating. in the past two years, which is why I just think it's a different tier. And because it's a prove-it season for this Ohio How State is Texas? team. What has Texas done that, that Ohio State hasn't? They have a coaching squad who's won a national championship in the last few years. In 2019, team title, Coach Burke was the head coach there. And they had to go through a lot of adversity at that point in time. They have players who actually were on that team, Cleve Harper, Redshirt in 2019, and also the talent that uh, Texas has brought in. Their six guys going to be better than Ohio State's six, in my opinion. So I think Texas wins the talent uh, war against Ohio State. And Virginia, of course, has the intangibles. Virginia beat both Ohio State and Texas en route to the 2023 title. For me, that's why I have Texas and Virginia on their own tier. Again, I come from the tier school of Gruskin, and all of a sudden we've like reverse course here. But yeah, that would be my feedback. The thing is, I watched Ohio State beat TCU last year. I watched them beat Georgia last year, get to that NCAA final and have to tough it out to do so. I mean, those conditions were just miserable and they were there at the end. And, you know, again, Virginia beating them in the doubles point set that match on a course that it just felt like Ohio State was able, never able to recover from. But okay, now you've lost that match and everyone's back and you get to do it again and you get another bite at the apple. And again, this Texas crew, as much experience as they have, yeah, if you want to include Cleve Harper, fine. They've never played in an NCAA final. They've played in a national indoor final, but never an NCAA final. Yeah, they've been to the semifinals a couple of times. So has this Ohio State crew. I mean, again, by experience, that's why if you're Virginia's pre, if Virginia is our preseason number one, I guess you listeners will know if they are or not by now. And I guess, spoiler alert, since you do know, they are. Um it's because they've got five of six returners who have all won a national championship. That is why they have the benefit of the doubt. But I would just push back on the argument, much as I think we will in this UNC Stanford, you know, or UNC defending title, even beyond Stanford discussion. The talent is equal in a way this year, and the experience is equal across the board. Where Virginia is not defending their title bunch against a bunch of talented freshmen, you know, again. Kingsley's a fifth year. Spaziri's a fifth year. Harper's a sixth year. Uh, 
Boulay is a fifth year. Waldeep's a fifth year. Tracy's a senior. Like, all these guys have all been around forever. And there's a desperation there. And I just think the talent is equal. And with the desperation now being equal, oh, my God, let's roll the balls out and play. That's why I would put them all in the same tier. In a way, I'm sorry. I just I wouldn't put TCU there. And in retrospect, I never should have. That The tier should have stopped at three, but you're wrong not to have Ohio State in that top same tier as Texas because the talent is equal. The experience is equal. Well, I, di- I disagree. I think the talent is not equal. I think the experience is not equal. So we'll have to agree to disagree. But you bring up Stanford and the North Carolina comparisons. That was our last episode, Stanford, our preseason number two. I do want to make a note on that episode where I did say that Stanford was a more talented team than North Carolina. I specifically brought up Annika Yarlagata and Riley Tran as examples. And the broader point I was trying to make was that Stanford brings in highly pedigreed junior players. And often those players don't make significant jumps while in college. And that is in stark contrast to some of these other programs that have a more established track record of player development. The word talent in this context was not the right word choice. I should have used something like decorated, pedigreed, or polished. And it was certainly unnecessary to call out Yarlagada and Tran. So I wanted to apologize for that super clunky explanation on our last episode and just clarify the overall point I was trying to make. Appreciate that. I didn't think it was clunky in the moment, nor offensive. I understood that point that you were trying to make. If you felt you didn't communicate it properly, I appreciate you cleaning it up now. But let the record show. I never thought it was ill intent. Like, I, I understand your point. Yeah, definitely Kat- not. Yeah, Catherine Huey won a junior U.S. Open. Like, of course, on paper, she comes in with the pedigree of talent that, well, Anika Yarlagata's poster is up in our home local club, and mine is not. Fight that another battle. Who brought home a national championship first, even though her was weighs a little bit more than mine? Um, anyways, yeah, obviously, that's not a junior U.S. Open title coming in. So, no, I, I understand the point you were trying to make. And, again, we can talk about UNC's talent in its entirety here as we break down their 2023 season and look forward to their 2024. Of course, looking back, it was the year of firsts for this UNC program, whether it was the four straight national indoor titles or whether it was the fact that, of course, the headline, they end the drought, they win the NCAA team title. And it's just, again, I've called it the decade of UNC. The half decade is probably a more accurate assessment, but just the buildup to this title, they had done everything but win an NCAA team title. They make the semifinals 2019, 2021, 2022 in the buildup to this year. Obviously, they had that finals in 2024, but keep in mind they had made the national indoor final or further in every season since 2015 with titles in 15, 18, and each of the last four seasons. They've produced NCAA singles champions during this half decade or decade run. Jamie Loeb winning in 2015 the NCAA doubles champions, whether it's back in 2007 or of more late 2021. Obviously last year winning the doubles title as well as having the doubles finalists, another signature moment. Again, this program had done everything in the build-up to last season. And when they won another national indoor title, beating Texas A&M in the fashion that they did, 
probably the highest level or certainly as high a level as I saw in any match we saw throughout the course of the 2023 season for them to win that match, go on to beat Georgia in the fashion they did, you know, again, cruise through another undefeated regular ACC season. It felt like everything was lining up for the Tar Heels last year. And then they have the hiccup. They go to that ACC tournament final, and they don't just lose the match to NC State. NC State cleans their clock. Like, there was no doubt who the better team was on that day, a 4-1 win for the Wolfpack. And, you know, again, now the doubt starts to creep in. Yeah, and North Carolina had beaten NC State during the regular season, but there were a few absences in lineups during that match. And again, it was a choppy match, indoors, outdoors, weather delays for those of you that remember that regular season affair. I was fortunate enough to be on the call for it. Again, just there was doubt injected with how well, again, Diana Schneider was playing at the top of the lineup as well. You felt like NC State not only could come in saying we've beaten the Tar Heels, but we think we have the best player on the court as well. Always a nice thing to have in your back pocket. UNC faces a hiccup even before then. NCAA round of 16, Florida doubles. Got a little choppy, obviously, but they get through that 4-1. Then a familiar foe, Texas, in the quarterfinals. That match, very, very close. UNC sneaks by 4-2. They were probably happier to see Georgia in the semifinal than maybe any other opponent just because they knew them so well, had already played them twice that season and certainly looked the part in the 4-0 win. But who was waiting on the other end? of that NCAA final, it was NC State. And we got the match we deserved. It was a fantastic NCAA championship. Yeah, the final scoreline was 4-1. Match was far closer than that scoreline would reveal. And obviously, it was a very close doubles point. Schneider-Smith looking the part of top team in the country. 6-4 at 1 over this renovated uh Doubles lineup for UNC of Crawley and Forbes. Then you had the decisive win from Scotty, Tan Gillig. Uh, 6-1 win for them at the number two spot over Miller, Rejecki. It comes down to number three, Tran, Brantmeyer, Abrams, Renchelli. In the end, the Tar Heels take that 6-4 doubles point. Boy, did that prove huge because, again, NC State came out swinging in first sets. They take three first sets. You know, Renchelli and Scotty are in a breaker as well. Rejecki's forcing her way to a third against Tan Gillig. Felt like things were kind of turning NC State's way. Schneider gets that decisive first point on the board, three and four over Brant Meyer. But then the Tar Heel push came, and man, was it fun to watch, whether it was Scotty getting through in straight sets, Tran, Yarlagata, each forcing thirds, Crawley obviously putting a point on the board, and then Carson Tangillig with the clinch, 6-3 in the third. Obviously, she had clinched the national indoors as well, so it was the year for Carson in clinching, and it was the year for the Tar Heels in clinching their first NCAA team title, Jay. That was the storyline Underperformance, overperformance isn't even the discussion. It's just nice to finally put that storyline to bed, Jay. That's the last time I'll ever have to say that. I'll never have to say, well, there's the asterisk because I think they would have won in 2020. Who cares? They won in 2023. You know, again, the decade of the Tar Heel is complete. Well, the decade of the Tar Heel sounds like a multi-series podcast that you should release. <laughs> uh, and I like that you just gave us I probably the have mid- to wait for Brian to retire. But yeah, I think you could do it now. You just gave us the full tease of it. (laughs) Uh, I mean, absolutely. Can we all just take a huge collective exhale and just like you're right. I mean, year after year, it, it just felt like this constant clinching of a stress ball where there was this like 
dark cloud of like doubt and anxiety. And now we can just let out that sigh of relief. They have won the NCAA team title, which was always, again, the narrative. And I that match against NC State, in a lot of ways, I felt was very emblematic of their whole ethos over the past decade. I think many other North Carolina teams would have lost that match because I think many other North Carolina teams of years past, Scotty wouldn't have taken that first set in the tiebreak. Tran and Yarlagada would get beaten in straights and all of a sudden it would go the wrong way. And it really felt like this team, even in the early goings of the season, had a levity about them that you maybe didn't feel in years past. And it felt like they stared down the barrel of the beast in those really the four through six trenches and said, like, this is not happening this year. And they were able to pull that out. And even though Yarla got and Tran didn't get off the court, right, for them to take those second sets and come back from, in some cases, very large uh, gaps, it it was it was great to see. And I'm so happy to be talking about this team now without having to discuss this elephant in the room. And so it's a huge testament to them to get over the hump uh, in the fashion that they did and to come back from that NC State loss in the ACC championship. It was uh, it was storybook in a lot of ways. And you mentioned a, a key aspect there. This team did such a great job of keeping the long-term perspective in mind, I thought, all, all season long. And we talked about this at the National Indoors. I asked both Coach Thompson and Calbus about this when I spoke with them on Cracked Interviews last year. And obviously, there are times when this podcast turns into the Carolina Beat with all the success they've had over the last four seasons. I've never called the National Indoors. They haven't won. Uh, but it was funny talking to him and you know watching that group play at the Indoors. Obviously, they were supremely talented. But you could tell there was a little awkwardness in the best sense. And here's what I mean by that. This was a team that was trying to learn how to be positive throughout the course of the match. And they they stayed positive throughout the course of that semifinal in particular against A&M. Obviously, they came out with energy against Georgia. It all worked. But you could tell they weren't exactly comfortable doing it. Like, it didn't come naturally on every court to bring the noise, to go give the high five to the teammate on the court next to you, whatever it may be. They were trying to build those reflexes throughout the course of the season and the way it kind of all fell into place, whether it was having to click down the home stretch, winning, you know, again, a doubles point against NC State or seeing four, five, and six all fall your way while two and three are doing their thing uh, during that singles push at the end of that NCAA final. Like this team learned how to play connected. This turn team learned how to, you know, match efforts one through or match energy levels one through six to where it didn't have to be individual superstars on all of these points pulling Carolina over the edge. I just thought, you're right, they mastered that extra component as well, the intangible stuff, the things we can't measure with the results. And again, those sorts of things do make a difference. Yeah, and there, I mean, going back all the way to you know 2010, I feel like there has been almost an undercurrent of like anger in a lot of that energy out displayed on the court and that you just didn't feel in 2023. And I don't know whether it was just uh, a different focus, whether that was something that they did in the locker room. But there was, again, there was a positivity and a levity that this team had. 
I didn't see the awkwardness, but I, you know, maybe you did, but something changed. And again, you can't quantify it, but there was just a different attitude and a different approach. And ultimately it, it helped them get over the hump. Case in point, they changed the doubles lineup to start the NCAA tournament and it works. They win the doubles point in the match they need to win it most. And Jay has a smile on his face. <laughs> well, I didn't know if we were going to go there. Well, and... you're saying it worked. <laughs> it worked. It was, uh, yeah, it was quite the choice. I mean, those li- those doubles lines were specifically to beat NC State. And essentially, like, from my vantage point, they threw number one by putting Abby Forbes and Crawley at number one. I don't think they were going to beat Diana Schneider and Lana Smith at number one. They put two of their best doubles players together in Scotty and Tangilla get two. They ran away with that match for Jackie and Miller. It just hadn't looked good. And then having Reese Brantmeyer down at three, that would help. So that <laughs> certainly helped them. And it was all coupled with the machinations that were attempted with putting Abby Forbes at three. There was definitely lineup chicanery that went on and it won't be remembered after this podcast and uh but it's it was it worked let me ask you this you switch Brantmeyer and Crawley does the result of the match change you can't answer that question because yeah, how so did like how different is North Carolina's attitude in that match if they're down 1-0 and it's all of a sudden it's like here we go again we, no, we no, lost no, no, no. up not in sing, not in doubles and singles. Uh, you're right. The doubles lineup you can't project because there are too many changes in the Carolina lineup. I'm talking singles, which is where the other change came. Brantmeyer, Crawley, the late season switch. That's my ask to you. Since we'll, this is the last time we'll have this conversation. Does the match change if Brantmeyer's at two versus Smith, Crawley at one versus Schneider? I think it. Well, are, do they win doubles? Because if UNC wins doubles, then I don't think it does because I think yeah. that match comes down to four, five, and six, But and they could afford to lose. See? Diana Schneider was going to win. I think Alana Smith could have be- beaten Reese Brantmeyer, particularly the Reese Brantmeyer we saw show up against Mel Riasco in the first round of NCAAs. Alana Smith was playing great tennis, so she probably does win that match. But there's too many other matchups that don't change, right? Tan Gillig would still beat Rejecki. Um, Scott Scotty would win. still beat Rinchelli. So if you're talking now, Tran and Tran and Yarlagata, one of them has to win. And one it of them felt would like have it to come trending through. in that direction. It was, but that, you know, again, yeah, the, the double is, it, it would have been so different, right? There's a lot of different pressure, but so it's the last time we're having this conversation. I actually think the singles was the more notable one than the doubles. Crawley had been one all year long. She'd been number one in the country all year long. I think she lost like one match all year long. That was the one that surprised me. Doubles was always throw a name in a hat. That one wasn't. No. I mean, they put out teams that had not played at all together. Which is why the... it was like it was a wild card both ways. But at least with the the Crawley and the Brantmeyer switch, which I did, which I didn't agree with at the time, Brantmeyer had played above Crawley at some point in the season, oh, yeah. right? Like that had happened. Versus they it was a totally new uh, new dynamic. I'll just say, like, if I'm Coach Earnshaw, I'm pissed. <laughs> like, and if I'm Coach Earnshaw, I absolutely believe that. If North Carolina was forced to roll out the same lineup, NC State wins the match. That's fair enough. But again can only play the final that we saw played. It was a really good one. Here's the point oh, I'm trying fantastic. to make. Yeah, we spent this long on it speaks to. I mean, when Yarlagata and Tran won those second sets with Scotty also pulling through in straights, that was just one of those swings that you get that gives you chills as a fan at a college tennis match.
I'll never forget it. You know, yeah. I was sitting kind of behind like Scotty and trans yeah. courts. And if Scotty had not won that tie break in her first yeah. set, I don't know if Tran and Yarla got make their second set comeback, okay. right? You could just, that was one of those things. That's the beauty of college tennis. You could feel the momentum just start to permeate. And yeah, it was, uh, in the was, atmosphere was great. The weather was fantastic. It, it was, uh, it was a really great match. The Tran breaker seven, six, that second set breaker was so good. Oh, it was really, yeah. really good. After being down like four Oh in the second, yeah. maybe even. Yeah, yeah Yarlagata, Dittman were trading breaks down the home stretch of that second set. 7-5, Annika ultimately took it. I mean, again, Crawley, Carson, Scotty, that was the recipe in singles. But there were good matches. Ever. It was it was as good of a match as I have seen in an NCAA final in the three years I've been there in person. And, you know, again, there have certainly been some good ones over that stretch of time. But credit to the Tar Heels. They are now team champions. And, you know, again, what's even more enjoyable than winning the first? Probably trying to defend it and going to bring back that second. Do you know how many women's programs have done that? Or well, they have successfully defended their first NCAA team title? Not only do I know how many programs have done it, Jay, I'm pretty sure I can name all the years because I, like you, also do some research for this podcast. Obviously, the most notable example and the third program to ever accomplish this feat was the Texas Longhorns who went back-to-back in 21 and 22. No, defended their first NCAA. Oh, oh, oh. See, now we're talking, Jay. Well, Texas is the answer to that because they did it in, in 95 and 6. No, they won those in alternate years because they had the two before but they weren't back-to-back so scratch that florida won back-to-back in 10 and 11 but that wasn't the first time so the answer is not them i'm gonna put stanford on the list it's either stanford or no one so i'm gonna say stanford stanford didn't do it it's no one it's It's never been done before that is impressive because the stat i had for all of you is who's won back-to-back titles and that's those three programs texas in 20 and 20 uh 21 and 22 florida in 10 and 11 stanford has done it a bunch of times but not that frequently in the 21st century i think it was 05 to 06 or 07 where they won three consecutively there so two back-to-backs they had the 10 and 11 back-to-back 18 19 back-to-back or not 10 and 11 excuse me 18 19 back-to-back as well so i think it had been done five times if you count all the stanford consecutives as just one back-to-back run it hasn't been done that frequently is the point I'm trying to make. And to Jay's point, no first-time NCAA title winning team has ever won a back-to-back title. On to the women's side. Second. That is fascinating to learn. But if any team has the roster to do it, it's this team. That brings back everyone. Let me say that again. They bring back everyone from last season's squad. You want Brant Meyer back? Not only is she back, She just won an ITA National Fall Championship. She won her first Pro Circuit singles title over the course of the summer as well. Double success over the course of the summer. Brantmeyer has played excellent tennis since leaving college tennis. On that somewhat disappointing note, that first round exit in the NCAA singles tournament, she's more than made up for it, obviously, in the seven months since. She comes in in excellent form. By the way, you're getting Fiona Crawley back, the same Fiona Crawley who qualified for the U.S. Open, the same Fiona Crawley who, what did she do this week in Sumter? It was the final of the 25K, her third? Well, she's in the in the final of Arcadia right now Arcadia, playing Ashley Leahy. Yes, playing that. That's a fun matchup, a little Pepperdine-Carolina crossover. Uh, but she has had 
her most successful pro seven months of her career. And while she didn't play much in the fall, and in fact, she's the pretty much the one Tar Heel not ranked in the ITA singles rankings right now. Someone who has lost, what, 11 dual matches in her career. I was looking at the record book, and I just want to get this out because this stat is hilarious for Fiona Crawley entering the year. Career winning percentage, minimum 80 matches. Fiona Crawley, 123 and 11. She's won 91.7% of her matches. That is number one in North Carolina history. That is a heck of a top four. It's her, then Jamie Loeb at 90.3, which, by the way, that's a real race. Crawley's going to have to have a good year, but she also might not play that much because who knows how much they'll need her. That's how deep this team is. We'll get into it. She can go play pro events if she wants. 123 and 11, Jay. 91.7% ruin percentage. That's laughable. Next up, Loeb at 90.3, Carter at 87, then Graham at 82.4. I think you know three of the faces on the UNC Mount Rushmore right now. Who would the fourth be? Um, that might be an open question. You Are go, you saying those would be the, the probably Mount Rushmore? Loeb Carter? Someone else? Uh, I mean, Loeb and Carter. I feel like you can't go without Scotty. Uh, like. No, I, well, I, was, I mean, how far we're talking entire history I know, here. I mean, tough. you have There's to go Sarah ones. O'Leary or yeah. Jenna Long from the late, you know, 2000s who helped put the program on the map. You know, is it, do you want to do the Rushmore discussion? Should we do it? <laughs> no, because I think it should be in the decade Tar Heel okay, <laughs> limited so. edition podcast series you released. Well, yeah, we'll save that for the book or the podcast. I like that. But again, your top four, Crawley, Loeb, Carter, Graham. Yarla got a sixth, by the way. She's 88 and 22, 80% win percentage. Sixth right now. That's wrong. Seventh. She's behind Sarah Davitella. Uh, it's just flipped incorrectly in the record book right now. But yeah, it's by the way, Sarah Davitella, another name who has acclaimed that Mount Rushmore. You're right. It requires more thought. Um, but maybe a, maybe it's a seven-face Mount Rushmore. Maybe you can't limit it. <laughs> yeah, who four. says it has to be four? Yeah, exactly. They're building a new facility. You can add seven faces to the list. Anyways, you, you got eight courts to work with, right? So you can name them after eight different players. That's what perhaps that's the happy compromise we can make. Here's the point. She's back. Carson Tan Gillig is back. And, you know, we saw her mostly at the plus one event. We can talk about that result here in a little bit. But even with the limited action we saw from Carson, she's still pretty freaking highly ranked. In fact, she is currently, let's see, where is she in the, there's a lot of Tar Heels, number seven, excuse me, in the ITA singles rankings right now. That's not a bad spot for a player who probably is sliding at the number three spot this year. Of course, if that's not enough, again, Scotty's back. Here, Legata's back. Tran is back. Forbes is back. Your core seven are back, Jay. And they just won a national championship. And they just won the national indoors. And their biggest foe from last season doesn't look the same as they did a year later. I mean, that's where we start. I don't know how to go negative, Jay. You're, I'm going to yeah, need some help uh, here. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's where I come in, right? In no, all of these no, 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 no. I didn't out. mean it like that. I meant just like, what's the zag? Like, I've tried to spitball. What is the possible zag here when looking at this core? Because well, I don't know if I see it. Well, before we zag, I think like a yeah, few other zag. a few other notes on these players. I mean, you mentioned it in some of those records. Not a lot of losing happens across this team. I mean, last season they basically lost five or less matches at every spot but number three. And then four of those top six lost two or fewer dual matches. So that's crazy. Crawley, Scotty, Yarlagata, Tran, two or less. It's crazy. And, and last season, I would say we 
saw a full season of Elizabeth Scotty, 22 and two. She played pretty much all of their matches. It was great to see. So, and as you mentioned, the experience is there. Everyone who's returning is an upperclassman. You have fifth years, Forbes, Scotty Arlegata, seniors, Crawley Tran, junior, Tangillic. It's a lot of talent and they didn't give us anything to really zag on in the fall. As you mentioned, they played a lot of tennis. They finished with three players in the top 10. Reese Brantmeyer makes her fall debut, actually. She was ineligible last fall. She wins the ITA Fall National Championships. The zag is, it's a whole new pressure. There's a reason why it's never been done before for a first-time NCAA team title to win and defend it. And yeah, it's it's a different pressure that they have to deal with uh, this spring. That's fair. My zag is also, I think the field is better and we can get to that in a, in a second. But the zig, as we continue to focus on the positives, you look back at last season, I'm glad you mentioned that Scotty record because I think coming into the year, we both thought she would be the Corvette you keep in the car for the really good sunny days. And, you know, yep. on those beautiful days, we'll bring out Scotty. We'll unveil the Corvette. We'll show you our best. We're going to get over the finish line there, but we're going to limit her pitch count, the miles, whatever analogy you want to go with here. And you're right. That wasn't the case. It was Forbes who ended up being the Corvette that, yeah, we got to see at the national indoors. And certainly we saw in doubles in that number one uh, spot in the NCAA final, but played much less singles than I think we expected out of her. The single greatest strength that the Tar Heels have coming into this season is is that Scotty can also be a Corvette you put in the garage this year for the sunny days because they have an eighth piece now. They bring in a Rapman who is one of the top, what, 10 newcomers? I believe she was on the list for the ITA entering this 2024 season, someone who was a blue chip in her class and you know didn't have the greatest falls in terms of things we've seen from Tar Heel freshmen in the past, but I thought she had a pretty good fall overall, and we can get into that here in a second, but like... Again, you can pull a Scotty and a Forbes on a given day if you want to play Rabbin at six and feel fine if Tran or Yarla got her at that four or five spot. If you want to pull Crawley and say, go play a pro event because there's something in South Carolina this week that you want to go play, you can do that and move everyone else up a spot and still know, hey, we have one of Scotty or Forbes still on the bench on a given day and we're fine with that as well. Or again, Tran, Yarlagata, whomever it may be that needs a break during the course of the season, you just have the room to maybe keep everyone's match count no higher than 20. And like, that's a luxury these Tar Heels have. And there's, they can still be number one in the country while doing so. Yeah. It reminds me of the 2021 team where, you know, you had players like Sarah Davatella, Alexa Graham, McKenna Jones, we'd all been ranked top five in the country. And it was like, oh, we can rest and and recycle players. And certainly I think that will be the case. Uh, a, a note on Rabman, she actually wasn't an ITA newcomer in the top 10 there, but she does finish in the fall rankings as the highest ranked freshman. So I feel like she did a lot of winning in the fall which was uh impressive and she looks she looks good i thought she you know maybe didn't have a, a jamie Loeb or a Haley carter freshman fall but i thought she looked really solid and will certainly contribute to this north carolina team my question for you is of rabman scotty and forbes who plays the most singles matches that's a great question 
Um, you should put Crawley on that list as well. I just feel like she's going to have the opportunity to go play more pro events, and or she'll maybe given that she got the, you know again I don't know how much that was a focus of hers prior to winning the NCAA team title. I feel like now she's made that more pri- of a priority for her over the course of the past nine months. <sighs> Scotty won, Rabman two, no, 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 Crawley won, Scotty two, Rabman three, Forbes four. But it's going to be mm-hmm. close across the board. In they're terms all of the gonna be around, Yeah, they're all going to be from like 18 to 22. Yeah, I, I do think because of the... I mean, they lose so many players after yeah. this year, right? They lose Forbes, Scotty, Arlegada, Crawley, Tran. It's five players. <laughs> and I do think you need to build for the future. So I actually do think we will see Rabman get a lot of reps in here. And she would be an excellent six, right? She could potentially be one of the best sixes in the country. So I do think she'll get a lot of reps in. I don't think we'll see Forbes much in singles. Um, so, But yeah, I think it's going to be a race. And again, they'll probably all have... Pretty similar numbers, at least Scotty, Rabin, and Crawley. I mentioned the rankings earlier. Brant Myers at five, Tan Gillig seven, Yarlagata nine, Tran at twenty-eight, Rabman thirty-two on the back of a twelve and five fall. Yeah, not too shabby. Forbes is forty-one after a six and four fall. Scotty forty-four after a two and zero oh fall. So yeah, again, that's six ranked. Tar Heels right off the bat. Six or seven. Good math there, Alex. That is, uh, excuse me, seven ranked Tar Heels. And the one missing is Fiona Crawley, who spent the majority of last season at the number one spot. So, yeah, they are well positioned for another season. What was so fascinating is the fall wasn't that great for the Tar Heels, it felt like, at first. Like, again, the plus one event, they were okay. Like, certainly, uh, it was, I believe, Tan Gillig who made what a run to the quarterfinals before getting knocked out by Stoyana. Yarlagata, certainly a good win, beating Ayana Ackley in the back draw. Um, but, you know, again, then they go to uh, ITA All-Americans, only Brantmeyer Crawley in the singles draw. Brantmeyer wins one back draw match, Crawley losing in the round of 16, no notable double success. And then things started to pick up, right? It was a slow burn for the Tar Heels this fall. And it was that back half that probably has you most confident as a Tar Heel fan. That too, what I mentioned earlier, Rabman did run up to 12 wins. Got to play 17 matches in the fall. That, you know, Carson and Scotty, after maybe some early injuries, found their form. And, uh, excuse me, Forbes still playing top 50 tennis. Tran getting a bunch of matches in. Yarla got ends top 10 in the preseason. Like, and arguably, she had a worse fall than she did last year. It was a slow yeah. burn is what I'm trying to say. I feel like it was more of like a sporadic burn because, okay. you know, you had players like, I mean, it was the All-American thing was the big gap, right? Because yeah. in the previous year, they had, what, five of the eight quarterfinalists and three of the four semifinalists. So that's why not having really any representation deep in the All-American tournament felt like, whoa, this is weird. Because also North Carolina does prioritize the fall. We've been on a few of these episodes and they're almost like no fall results for some players on some teams. And all of these players do play the fall. So, you know, you had... You know, Crawley lose to Kari Miller, which kind of was the surprise. But early in the season, I thought Tan Gillig looked strong. She started out getting wins over a lot of players who ultimately had very strong falls, like 
uh, Bridget Samuel of Vanderbilt, Emily De Oliveira of Florida. And then she had a disappointing All-Americans, losing to Cooperus, losing to Ludmilla Benchik of Alabama. But then Fall Nats picks up and you see Reese Brantmeyer win. You see her win with Scotty, first player to do that, win the double in, in decades. Uh, so, yeah, I thought it was a another solid fall and they did it all without Raleigh really making an appearance and Scotty she shows up I love the Corvette now she shows up she smokes Connie Ma two and two and then she withdraws and you never see her in singles again but overall they're really and we should mention Riley Tran shows up at she wins the Milwaukee Classic gets a wild card to fall Nats takes out Alexa Noel in the first round who was number one seed at the time so everyone gave you something to feel good about and that I think is the important part. Absolutely. And again, Brantmeyer for the headliner to beat Hamner, Obi, and Ackley back to back to back to clinch that fall that singles title you mentioned sweeps the double for the first time, winning singles and doubles in decades. Yeah, like minimum A minus was the ultimate grade. And then Crawley goes and has some more success on the pro circuit as well. So maybe you even bump it up to the A. And again, there's a reason they were the unanimous preseason number one in the preseason poll for the coaches. They were unanimous amongst our six voters here at Cracked Rackets as well. It just makes sense. They have all of the pieces. They obviously, Hold on, six voters? Yeah, we, I'll tell you about the new addition for our regular season. I think you know who it is, but said person has agreed. So we will have six oh. moving forward. And I needed okay. confirmation for our number one spot, so I turned to said person uh, for help at the top of the list here. This was a month ago, but it feels pretty recent because whenever I speak with this person, it's always a highlight of my day. That's probably a hint at who it is, Jay. Um, anyways, all that is to say... They're the unanimous number one. Nothing in the summer, nothing in the fall would suggest otherwise. So now we get to do the fun stuff. Now we get to hypothesize, Jay. Who's their MVP? Who's the player, the position, whatever it may be, however you want to define the P on this day? How are you looking at this category as it relates to the defending champs? Because, again, they got a little bit of everything. Well, for me, it's it's the V that I play with, not the not the P um, in terms of valuable versus vulnerable. So I will say this about looking at this lineup. I have zero questions about doubles like they just had two teams reach the NCAA finals face each other. So I have no questions about doubles. I think at this point, particularly given some of the talent that's left NC State, I think North Carolina is unequivocally the best doubles program in the country right now i don't have any questions about one and two whatever order you're going to play them in crawley brantmeyer whatever you're going to do there uh fine i don't have any questions about four through six i think you have a lot of options there i have two questions about first is number three this is where they were most vulnerable where they lost the most matches last season i think that record if you're looking at this north carolina lineup you circle number three you hope you can get a win there in singles. That's my first question, and that's my most vulnerable position for this team. I agree with your assessment. I look at it a different way. It's just like, who's going to eat the most innings? Who's going to lead this team in matches played? And I think the leaders in the clubhouse would probably be Brantmeyer, Tran, and Tan Gillick, right? Like, those are the three you feel like we're going to see in the lineup in every match. Yarligata probably as well, like, belongs on that tier of list. 
because I just think, again, those are the ones who are going to want to sustain their ranking because they know in bigger matches they might be playing lower in the lineup or are just players who are seniors and want to get their matches in. And, and the Tan Gillig case, maybe she's the one who gets to play one or two and gets a taste of that level, knowing what you're building for next season if a Crawley is out. Brantmeyer accelerator program, NCAA seeding, all these different things. You never know if she's going to be there next year either. So, you know, again, that's something you're looking for. <sighs> I mean, Reese could be the best player in the country, and I don't know if that's the MVP. I, I, three is a good position. Like, that feels right. Whoever that three is, are they the clear-cut three? Are they closer in level with Crawley Brantmeyer than the rest of the pack? How narrow is that gap? Does one of Tran or Yarla got to take that spot because they're playing so exceptionally well, whatever it may be? I'm going to say the number four spot because they should. Or I mean, honestly, the answer is five and six because they should never lose at five and six. We saw that last year. Like, that's where they dominate lesser opponents. I'm going to go with four because that's the highest of those spots. And against the Stanfords, against the Georgias, against the AMs, all these squads, like, again, Obviously, five and six, they're going to have to be really good. If they're very good at four as well, I don't know how you're beating this team. If they're winning the bottom three every time, they're also going to beat you up top. And obviously, depth is what separates good from great. This team has that. If Rabman secures a singles lineup, that means she's even better than advertised and just cannot be boxed out by someone who's obviously already proven their worth at that position. I'm going to go with the number four spot for MVP, Jay, because again, if they're sweeping the bottom three, everyone else is just f***ed. Four could also be where we see the most players play. 100%. Right? Because if you assume that coming in that that's Scotty's position, it's where she played in the NCAAs, but then you assume she might not play as many matches when all of a sudden it's, well, is it is Forbes getting singles action? Is Tran, Yarlagata, how high can Rabman go? I mean, you could see like five players at number four. And that's also why I'm so curious about three, because again, you assume coming into the season, it's Tangillig's spot to lose. That's where she played at three. But you have a, a large pack of players, right? Nipping at her heels there. And I'm there. <laughs> there you go. Nipping heels. heels. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm very curious about Carson Tangillig's season because I think mm-hmm. it wasn't, I'd put her and Savannah Brodus in the same bucket where we were so impressed by both of their freshman campaigns. I think Tan Gillig maybe didn't have the, I mean, it's, she won the NCAA doubles title and she won the team title. She won two NCAA titles, but I think the expectations were really high. And I do think this team is losing a lot of players. And so she will be the torchbearer for this team next season, 2025. I'm assuming Reese Brantmeyer might not come back. And so in that world, you would look for her to be in that conversation for playing the most matches, right? Carrying a lot of that load. And she's so athletic and so talented. You look for her to make that jump uh, in her final two seasons here. And so how how much can she lock up that three position is is what I'm curious about. But I think it is. I think you're right. I think it's in that middle of the lineup. Three, I appreciate four you unpacking that because when I talk about this team, I just it's a I just assume everyone knows the pieces as well as I do. And it's worth revisiting. Why do I think Tangillig is at that number three spot? Why do I think she's the piece you build around playing higher in the lineup moving forward? It's because of the weapons she possesses. You mentioned it. Her serve, her first forehand, her first step. 
the athleticism in and out of corners, her ability to get forward, and honestly, yeah. her success when moving forward. It's the game of someone who can have success in the top half of a lineup. And even w- without the understanding of, even if Brantmeier's back, like she still has to play number two that following season. And that is an even bigger ask than playing in that number three spot. And, you know, again, Rabbin's a freshman. I got to see her game more before I can assess it. But Tran, both wings, rock solid. She can beat you to the spot, no doubt. Her weapon can't overwhelm some of the higher, uh, you know, can't overwhelm players with the consistency to play on her terms the way a Tan Gillick can. I love Annika Yarlagata. Boy, does she play aggressive, not as fluid in and out of corners, not as able to play defense into offense, I would say, as Carson either. And, you know, again, Scotty, Scotty. So she's in a whole other category of what you see on any given day, like, can just strike. I mean, we saw her go 20 and two last year. So I guess you always see excellence on any given day. But again, Carson's the one who fits the profile most, can do the most things on court. You feel like you can put them together collectively. That's a top 10 player in the country. She's seven in the country off a seven and three fall. You mentioned it. Really nice wins over Arushia, Stamel, the Oliviera, Sasnaskaya. Seven and three is a lower match count than you'd expect. Again, she didn't play after October 2nd. And so you hope she's healthy because they're going to need her to play a lot of matches this year to sustain that level from last season. And, you know, again, I don't think you want to see a world where she's falling lower in the lineup because five of the seven are gone next year. Five of the eight are for sure gone next year. So you want her to be playing in that top half. We haven't talked about their doubles lineup because I don't really care what their doubles lineup is. Roll out the pieces. You'll be fine. You have the Fall Nats champs in Brantmire and Scott. You have the reigning NCAA champs in Crawley and Tan Gillig. And you can find a third doubles team out of the four pieces you have remaining. Tra- uh, Tran, who's top 40 with, I think, a couple different partners right now. Yeah, Tran and Forbes yeah. we saw for a good part of last season. If, if you're just running back last year's primary doubles lineups, you're doing just fine there. If you want to continue to play around, you can do that also. They're going to be fine in doubles. The track record proves as much. NCAA champions two of the last three years. What's the singles lineup? Like That's the question to ask. It's the most fascinating thing, Jay. How do you view it right now? It's crunch time. National Indoor NCA Finals, who's playing where in the singles lineup? Everyone's available. I mean, I think the, we don't see a lot of deviation from what they rolled out in 2023. I think you're going to see Crawley and Brantmeyer at one and two, whatever version they they want to roll out. What do you I, think it is? Just roll it out right now. I'm going to say Crawley, then Brant. No, I'm going to stick Brantmeyer, then Crawley. I... I still think the weapons of Brantmeyer, her upside is higher at one versus Crawley, who I actually think's upside is higher at two in the sense of like she's a sure thing. I know exactly the level. Well, that's why they put her at two for NC State. Yeah, but I also think that makes sense from a style standpoint. Sorry to cut you off. I think Crawley will win more matches at number one this season in the biggest moments. Okay. I think you go Crawley at one. Brantmeyer is a little too inconsistent for me still, so I think Again, I, so I get the argument for why you'd put her at one, just like, hey, have at it. But I do think that those weapons then overwhelm a little bit more at two. I think good particularly, yeah, it doesn't matter. So yeah, like either either way, like I it's, just like be, again, we're having fun. It's our final I, preseason. Yeah, job. I I would have I thought it was a little blasphemous to put Crawley at two in the twenty twenty three. I maintain that that is going to be the same thing in twenty twenty four. She's a senior. Like, come on, we've already had her down at like four or five and six. Like, let's let's put her at one. Uh, so I think you go Crawley, Brantmeyer, one, two. I do think 
like based on Tangillic's form, like there's no reason Scotty can't be up to three. And so those would be the only players I could see swapping there. But I think if we continue to see Tangillic improvement, which again, you need for the future of the program, I think you go Tangillic three, Scotty four. I would probably flip Yarlagata and Tran. I'd probably go Yarlagata at five, Tran at six, given what all, everything I've seen right now. But it's very similar to last season. I think Forbes uh, is also on the outside looking in. I think indoors you might switch Tran and Yarlagata versus outdoors. Like Yarlagata indoors at five, outdoors Tran at five. I'm fine with that. Like I, or either way. Like again, the lineup you rolled out last year won the NCAA championship. Yeah, so, I don't. I don't. And know I that. haven't. There's we haven't seen anything to suggest that like a hundred anything's really changed. Rapman, Forbes like need a spot in the lineup for some reason. Perhaps they both will. And again, that would speak to them having great years. And that's probably a good thing for Carolina. You want everyone playing well. That just means, again, you found a better version of yourself, perhaps. And look, looking at the schedule, we're going to get to see the Tar Heels tested. Certainly, we'll know who they are by the end of the National Indoors. And you feel like that's always the case for the four-time defending champs. But January 20th, that's a Saturday. They've got Auburn in Chapel Hill. The next day, they've got Georgia coming to Chapel Hill as well. They'll play Oregon. They'll play uh, then kickoff weekend, play Oregon, excuse me, then the winner of Charlotte or Kentucky. Obviously, they're hoping to get to the national indoors after that, get three to four more top 16 ranked matches in because after that, it's all ACC the rest of the way. Nothing else on the non-conference schedule. They don't need to schedule that aggressively in the sense that if they win the matches they should win, they'll be number one anyways. I also don't hate a lighter match load for this team. Again, you got a lot of veterans on this roster. You know who you are. Most The most important thing is staying healthy throughout the course of the season, and they still get enough in the ACC to get all of their options tested to work out their doubles lineups. Obviously, the big things this year, Chapel uh, in Chapel Hill, they get Virginia, but they got to go to Durham uh, for the Duke match. They got to go to Raleigh for the NC State match. I don't hate the schedule, Jay. I'm fine with it. Come on, it's a boring schedule. It's boring, but it, but don't you understand? But you understand why? Like they've got the South Florida trip. That's never fun. But like, you don't need to push this team in the way you needed to push unproven teams. Like this team understands what peaking in May now looks like. Yeah, but selfishly, yeah, sure, <laughs> we're t- you know, like this is a boring schedule. Now that and- is fair. Yeah, like, and and I'm actually disappointed because when Oklahoma State originally posted their schedule on social media, UNC was on it. They had UNC coming to Stillwater that is now off of both of their schedules. That's the sort of juice you're looking for. Can I zag on you why you're wrong? Because I have an argument for you right away. Okay. Why you're wrong is that this team, it made their schedule fun when we need it to be fun. So right off the bat of the year, who tests the champs? Let's see Auburn go to Chapel Hill. Let's see this Georgia team go play them. And then, of course, everyone's going to get a crack at them as they're the four-time national indoor champion. After that, I want to learn about everyone else. Like, I'll know who Carolina is at that point. So they're like, okay, we're going to fall off the radar. You guys go learn about everyone else while we're just coasting through another ACC season. We'll see y'all come May. I've focused on the Tar Heels enough over my last four years trying to answer the question, is this the year? Let them sit to the side in conference play. Let us focus on someone else. 
I couldn't disagree more. How fun was NC State versus UNC <laughs> narrative January through May? You're saying you don't want these Tar Heels to go to Stillwater, potentially lose on the road in Stillwater and have to come back in May and have that narrative still like permeate the conversation. No, these this team plays two tough matches in January 20th and 21st, and then we'll probably roll through an ACC that is less stellar than it has been in recent years. And look, I think it's a very fair question to say if UNC did not lose to NC State in the ACC championship, what happens in that NCAA final? It could be very different. I'll tell you what, they probably don't change that lineup. uh, So it could be very different. So yeah, I mean, it's disappointing. I think you want to see these top teams play each other. You want to see them play more out of conference matches. To see that Oklahoma State match in particular get pulled, disappointing. So yeah, we certainly will be focusing on other teams because it's very likely that this North Carolina team will be undefeated going into NCAAs. Which would make it that much more fun, by the way. I have that storyline lingering over everything. You're right. Fan perspective, not as fun. I guess I just so thoroughly understand why the schedule looks like it does from Coach Kalbis's perception uh, perspective. And by the way, new addition, Haley Carter, third coach to the staff, not the worst third addition to bring on. That'll be huge throughout the course of the season as well. Yeah, you're right, though. From a fan perspective, it would be great if A&M had a trip there or Stanford. They had a cross-country ACC preview trip for 2025. They don't. We're still going to get to see plenty of the Tar Heels, though. Again, the ACC is down by its standards. There's no doubt about it. They don't have seven unequivocal top 12 teams. They still have a bunch of teams in that top 16 mix. Obviously, UNC, NC State. Duke, the standouts always, but Georgia Tech, always a frisky team, Miami, Florida State, etc. There's still going to be plenty of fun matches, Virginia, uh, throughout the course of the ACC season. We don't have to talk ceiling or floor for this team. Let's just ask the big question. If they don't repeat John Parsons, what will be the reason? The field has elevated itself. 100%, and that's where I want to end this preview the floor is yours and I'll clean up afterwards. <laughs> well, oh yeah, the mess I'm about to make. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, we've talked about all of these teams and their potential upside. We've talked about the depth. We talked about the depth that North Carolina has. We just talked about who on earth is going to play be seven for Stanford and how criminal that is that that person is going to be seven, right? We've talked about a Georgia team and a lot of these other teams as well to harken back to the Ohio State men's conversation, have now gotten more experience as well. That's a core Georgia team that just lost this North Carolina in the semifinals. It's a Stanford team that's Stanford, but also just got back to the semifinals. There's just a lot of teams that have built up really fantastic teams this year. We certainly, this is the last year of the COVID eligibility, so we're certainly... We haven't seen any degradation on the women's side. These teams, top to bottom, are extremely solid. So I think the field has absolutely elevated relative to last season. And look, we saw this. We had a very similar conversation going into 2021 where we thought North Carolina would really run away with that conversation and or that title, and you didn't really see what was cooking at a Texas or a Pepperdine. I think it's very possible that some of these teams 
cook throughout the season and show up in Stillwater ready to take down the Tar Heels. You are absolutely correct. It's just a make-or-break year for so many different programs. Obviously, for a Stanford group, Angelica Blake does not want to be on the list of classes without a title leaving Stanford. And that core, again, brings back five of six and adds two blue-chip top five freshmen in the country in Elena Yu and Catherine Huey. They are going to be as good or better than a team that made the NCAA semifinals last year. You bring back, obviously, a Georgia squad, Vidmanova, Riasco. They're back. Vecic, now healthy. You've got Lapata's back. You've got Narundorn, Gigi Grant, all these different pieces. Uh, I'm blanking on the other freshmen they bring in. But uh, obviously, that is a team that is better than the version of the team you played last year that made the national indoor finals and NCAA semifinals, even though they lost Liam and even though they lost Meg. Like, uh, you can lose two pieces and still find a way to get better. And if anything's shown this fall, it feels like Georgia has, again— You've got uh, an A&M squad that, yes, loses Goldsmith, loses Ewing, but they bring in a reigning junior French Open finalist. Maybe Carson Brandstein is back as well. And now all of a sudden with Stoyana playing as well as she has uh, is, maybe that team's better than last season's version. Obviously, you can go down the list. Michigan, Miller, Brown, there's desperation for that group. They want to swing at the champs. And to your point, those are the champs now. And there's nothing Michigan would like more than that crack. Oklahoma State, if you're playing them yeah. and it's at home yep. in Stillwater, that is a tough ask for anyone. This Pepperdine group, it is ours last year. Chen, Brodus, they ain't going to be there forever. There is a desperation. Redelic, Campana, like that group is old and experienced. And then again, this is the last year for Ansari and Arsenault. This is a Florida group that's really talented, really deep. Everyone's really good this year. NC State, like, you may know the faces, but those are faces Rejecki beat Crawley in the NCAA singles uh, quarters last year. Like, it's real. Round of 16, whatever round it was. Here's the point. All the faces are good. They're all experienced. And they're all coming for your crown. And that's what makes this season so fascinating is you have maybe a once in a generation team with this sort of experience for Carolina. And if you try to make an argument for another school, you're not going to get laughed out of the room. Like that's how good these other rosters are. And yet you look at this UNC squad and you just start laughing. Like they are the prohibitive favorites. They've earned that benefit of the doubt, not just with what they accomplished last season, but the institutional know-how as well. That would be my final take, Jay. Last word on UNC belongs to you. Well, it's a new test for them, and it's a high-class problem, right? To go sure. from will you get over the hump to now how do you deal with being the target for everyone? Because even though they came in every year as the top-ranked team, you have to believe every team also had that doubt about UNC. Well, can if we face them in May, like we still have a shot. Now they've done it, and again, it's all the same faces. So. Look, I there are maybe some things that could go wrong, and I think Oklahoma State can be very tricky if they have to play in Stillwater in May, absolutely. But there's also a world where this UNC team goes undefeated. Mm -hmm. And we've just seen them be so strong in January and February, four-time uh, defending champion of indoors. We'll see. But right now, there is no reason this team cannot win a second NCAA title. I'm excited to see 
how they navigate it, how they navigate all these different pieces. But again, it's a new era of North Carolina women's tennis that was ushered in in 2023. And so I'm curious to see what that next step looks like for them. And we will all get to see it unfold over the course of the next five months. Folks, that is your Cracked Rackets preseason. Number one, Team UNC. And that wraps our preseason podcast, previewing our top 10 squads entering the new year. Now, before we go, one last thing to ask you, John J. Parsons. We've gone through a lot. And again, to recap, number 10, Florida, 9, Texas, 8, Pepperdine, 7, NC State, 6, Michigan, 5, Oklahoma State, 4, A&M, 3, Georgia, 2, Stanford, and number 1, UNC. We've offered a lot of takes over that course of time, Jay. We even offered some takes up beforehand. One regret, one take you'd like back, something you maybe should have pushed more, whatever it may be. Your final thoughts as we approach this 2024 season. Well, at the start of this, we looked back at our 2023 and how we did. I think the one team that's on this list right now that I think we will regret having in our top 10 is Texas. I think with the departure of Nicole Rivkin, I do not think Texas will finish in the top 10. And so with that, I would probably move everyone up and slot in Auburn. Mm. I also am not sure we've given Vanderbilt enough love. We talked about them. They're very talented. And Oklahoma are the two teams that I think would be right on the outside looking in. So that's my one regret. That's the one I think we'll probably miss on. It's probably not a good thing that we have the exact same regret. I would have said (laughs) Texas is the team I'd boot and I should have pushed harder for Auburn, who I still am firm is a top 10 team entering the year. But Yeah, I just don't have any questions about who's slotting where in their lineup. I think everyone's going to be competitive, at least in all six spots. I guess I have questions about who's slotting where, but I like whatever combination of six they come up with, and it's a depth now. You just don't have the same certainty. And as you look at this Texas team, who's still going to be in the top 16 hunt, still going to be better than the sum of their parts, as they always seem to be of late uh, come the postseason. But yeah, that's the team I would have pushed harder for. Other than that, I feel pretty good about our order. I like the takes. We went 10 of 10 last year, albeit, again, some teams in different positions, correct? Or we went 9 of 10? No, no, we didn't even. No, we went no. like 7 and 10. You know what? It was we, the men's side where we nailed yeah, it Yeah, you guys did year. better on the men's yeah. side. I'm feeling good, Jay. I feel confident. I feel like yeah, we're I would be, be surprised if I think we I, we missed Texas A&M. We didn't know about Salma Ewing. We missed Iowa State, and we missed Michigan. Those are the three we missed. I will be very surprised if we miss three. Again. Yeah, I also see our honorable mentions, and they all at least got a thought from us at some point. So we're going to miss by less than we at least missed last year. But again, we'll recap those misses come the 2025 preseason preview. For now, folks, that's your look heading into a new college tennis season. Of course, Jay and I will be back throughout the regular season as well. We'll be on YouTube so you can see our smiling faces. And we're all excited for the start of a new year. Of course, we'll have more on our broadcasting schedule moving forward as well. But be sure to stick with us here on the Great Shot Podcast for all of your coverage throughout the course of the 2024 season. Also, if you haven't already, hit the subscribe button. No ad, no problem podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. Plenty of great college tennis coverage spearheaded by Jay, Ethan, whoever it is you're bringing on on any given day as well. It's something college tennis fans will certainly enjoy. Any other things to plug, by the way, before we wrap today's show? No, I think the... um 
Uh, my f- men's favorites, Virginia and Texas, that episode is out and uh, and the mailbag episode. So you can go and listen to those. I love to hear it. Well, then for the final time here in the preseason for the fantastic John J. Parsons, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, who, as always, has a f- of an ending job to do day in, day out. And from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Jay, what do we tell our listeners? Hey, great shot. And we will see you all in the regular season. Thanks, everyone.